Um, Galatians 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you have heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and works miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you have heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it it says, The person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of the transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But but scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptised into Christ, have... uh, Sorry, for all of you who were baptised into Christ 
have clothed yourselves in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Amen. (laughs) Thanks, Abby. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for your gospel. This good news, this amazing promise that we can be yours through the finished work of Christ. Uh, Lord, whether we know it or not, we pray that you would reveal to us this morning your gospel afresh. Help us to appreciate it, help us to see it, help us to understand it. Lord, help us to rejoice in it, that we can be yours, not because of anything good in us, but because of your promise of grace. So Lord, open our eyes by your spirit so that we might understand this glorious truth this morning and we pray it for our good and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. I've got a question for you. There's no quiz. You don't have to submit your answers, but think in your own minds. Do Christians need to keep the Ten Commandments? Have a think in your own minds. You don't need to call out an answer. Do Christians need to keep the Ten Commandments? Now, it's a deceptive question. If you're having trouble answering it, well, there's a good reason. Because there are only two answers. Yes, we do need to keep them, or no, we do not need to keep them. But there are also two ways that you can go wrong with that question. Because it's a bit like asking, should a builder use a hammer? Well, sure, if they're knocking in nails. But if he's installing windows or trying to cut timber, it's a bad choice. You see, it all comes down to how we're intending to use the Ten Commandments. Well, this morning we're going to try and answer this question. We're going to learn what we as followers of Jesus should do with the Old Testament law. But we're actually doing more than that. We're actually answering a far more important question. In fact, I would suggest that it is the most important question that anyone could ever answer. The question is this, how do you get to God? How can you belong to God? How can you enjoy all the blessings of belonging to God? That's the real question we're answering. That's the real question that the whole book of Galatians is answering it. And we're continuing our series in Galatians, this letter written by Paul to Christians. But he's writing to Christians who have been deceived. They've been conned. You see it right here in the very first verse of chapter 3. Paul writes, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You see, they've been tricked, they've been conned, they've believed a lie. And like the Australians who lost $2 billion to scammers last year, this lie will cost the Galatians dearly. This lie is that belonging to God requires faith in Jesus and getting circumcised, which was the Old Testament way of showing that you belonged to God. This lie is saying you need to trust Jesus and obey the Old Testament law to be saved. And it it seems reasonable. It seems godly. But it's a lie. And so Paul spends chapter 3 explaining why it is so 
wrong. Now, this is an overwhelming chapter, I think, to some of you. Uh, It's long. It's fairly dense. But basically, Paul is making two big points. He's making the point that salvation is and always has been by faith alone. And he's making the opposite point that salvation is not and never could be something you earn. He then follows this up by answering some answers, by answering some frequently asked questions. And then finally, he wants to reinforce the point that faith makes all the difference. So they're kind of the four points of this sermon as we, as we work through this chapter. But we begin in the first nine verses where Paul aims to show us from the Old Testament that salvation is and always has been something that you receive by faith. But before Paul turns to the scripture, he actually points to his readers and he effectively says to them, you already know that salvation is by faith alone. You you knew it, but you've forgotten it somehow. Take a look at verse 1. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes? Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, chances are Jesus was not actually crucified before their very eyes. The people that Paul's writing to live as far away from Jerusalem as we are from Melbourne in a time without cars and planes. Uh, Jesus was crucified some 15 to 20 years earlier. Most of these people, I mean, it's fairly unlikely that any of these people actually saw Jesus on the cross physically. Now, they didn't see Jesus, but Paul preached to them. He painted a visual picture of Jesus Christ crucified. Because, you see, the Galatians have believed the gospel. And central to the gospel, at the core of the gospel, is Jesus on a cross. Have you ever noticed that there's like a cross in every church? Have you questioned why they're there? It's not for style. It's not aesthetics, although that one kind of looks nice. But the crosses on churches are here to visually remind us. To portray before our very eyes that our sin is so bad that it took nothing less than the death of the innocent Son of God to deal with it. Do you think Jesus would have gone to the cross if we could have saved ourselves? Do you think Jesus would have suffered such agony, such a brutal death, if we could be justified by obeying laws? Of course not. He didn't go to the cross for fun. A firefighter doesn't go into a burning house when he knows all the occupants are safe outside. That would be insane. No, Jesus' sweat was like great drops of blood because he desperately, desperately wanted there to be some other way by which we could be rescued. He prayed, Father, is there some other way? But friends, there is no other way. To believe in Christ is to believe that there is no other way to have a relationship with God. It's to say, I can't do it myself. I need Jesus to do it for me. And if you've seen Jesus on the cross, 
If you've seen Jesus bleeding and dying in your place, you you know there is no other way. The Galatians knew it, but Paul gives them another piece of evidence. He asks them, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? Was it that you obeyed enough and then God chose to live in you? Of course not. How did the Galatians receive the Spirit? They believed the gospel. Because believing the gospel and receiving the Spirit always go together. Always. There is no two-stage salvation, as some charismatic churches will teach. The only reason you believe is because God gave you His Spirit. The only reason you've experienced the Spirit's transforming power is because you've believed. They go together. You can't have one without the other. And so here's Paul, Paul's argument is this. If you've seen Jesus on the cross and you believe that his death is what your sin required, and if you've received the Spirit by believing the gospel, why would you try to earn it now? If faith was enough to begin the Christian life, why well, think you need something more to continue in it? It makes no sense because every aspect of your salvation, every step in the salvation journey from beginning to end is a gift that we receive by faith. Now, the Galatians knew this, but in case they still had doubts, Paul gives them another argument. He takes them to the Old Testament. He takes them to the story of Abraham and he wants to show them that the way to God's blessing has always been by faith. Because in Genesis 15, God reveals his great plan to bless the whole world. It's a huge plan, but it starts with just one man, Abraham. And it begins with God making Abraham a promise. He says, I am going to grow you, Abraham. I'm going to grow your family into a great nation. And through your family, I'm going to bless every nation. God takes him out and he points him up to the stars and he says, look at that. That's how big your family is going to be. And it's at that point that we read, as Paul quotes in verse 6, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, make no mistake, Abraham was not righteous. Genesis makes that perfectly clear. If you were with us at the start of the year when we studied this part of Genesis, you'll remember Abraham was not righteous. Before God called him, he was an idol worshipper. He worshipped false gods. Twice after God called him, he abandoned his wife to save his own skin. He was not righteous. Clearly, there was nothing Abraham had done that would make God give him these promises. What's more, there was nothing Abraham could do to achieve what God had promised. God promised that he was going to grow Abraham's family. Abraham's wife was barren. She couldn't have children. And she was old. She was well past the age that even fertile women could have children. Abraham can't, he's powerless to do anything about that. No, no, the promise, the promise was sheer grace. There was nothing in Abraham that made God give him the promise. There was nothing that Abraham could do to achieve the promise. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him 
as righteousness. Now, you might read that and think, ah, God rewarded Abraham for his faith. God looked at Abraham and he said, wow, that's incredible faith. I'm going to make you righteous. No. God crediting, crediting, I can't say that word. God giving Abraham righteousness is just another layer of grace on top of grace. His faith didn't earn him righteousness. Believing is just an act of receiving. That's why it's called a credit. It's like the credit I got on my electricity bill this week. I thought I'd like, you know, drastically cut my power usage. But then I saw on the bill, there was a credit from the Queensland government. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't even know I was getting it. I'm guessing at some point, Anastasia made a promise and I received it. Well, friends, God's blessings are the same. They always have been, always will be something that God gives that we receive. And we receive them by believing that he promises them to us. Salvation is and always has been something you receive by faith. That's our first point. Our second point is the same, but in the reverse. Because salvation is received by faith, it means it's not and never could be something you earn. And now we get to verse 10 and Paul makes this outrageous claim. Have a look at verse 10. This is the kind of thing that a Jewish person would read and then spit their tea out everywhere. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now you might read that and think, oh, big deal. We need to see the gravity of this statement. Because this is God's law that Paul is talking about. God's good, holy and perfect law. The law he told his people to keep. The law that Jesus said he would not abolish. Paul says, if you think you need to keep God's law, then you will be rejected by God forever. That's what it means to be cursed. How can Paul say that? Because the law was never meant to be the way that we would gain God's blessing. It was never intended to be a ladder by which we could climb our way to heaven. Because if it was, no one would get there. No one would ever make it. Because we can't keep God's law. No one can. At a surface level, you might think that you can. You know, you look at God's law and it seems possible. Don't lie, don't steal, don't murder. I think I can do that. But then when Jesus says something like thinking hateful thoughts is the same as murder, or that thinking lustful thoughts is the same as adultery, well, who can keep that? If the law was a way for us to get to God, it would mean that God requires us to do something that he knows we would never be able to do. He would have been setting us up for a lifetime of utter despair as like animals caught in a trap, we try to escape our inevitable death. The law was never meant to free us. The law only ever resulted in curse. And it took Jesus to redeem us from that curse. Verse 13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Friends, salvation is not and never could be something that you earn. I want to pause here. 
And I want to ask you, what is it that makes you think that you belong to God? What is it that gives you any confidence that God will accept you into heaven? Because, friends, if your confidence comes from you, if you hear that question and you instantly start to think of what you have done, if the reason you think you belong in heaven is because you are a good person, or because your faith is strong, or because you read your Bible every day, or because you belong to this church, friend, you are trying to earn something that you can never earn. And so if the basis for you having a relationship with God, being right with God, expecting eternity with God, if the basis for that is something that you have done, then you don't have God. If you think you deserve God's love, you don't have God's love. If you believe you've earned eternal life, you will not get eternal life. If you think you can be good enough for God, then friend, you don't know God and you also don't know yourself. The, the only way, the only way for you to enjoy the blessing of belonging to God is by believing in his promise. Your confidence isn't in anything that you can do, but in what he has done. It's because he went to the cross that you can be credited with righteousness. It's because his spirit lives in you that you can live a new life. And so, friends, don't ever take your eyes off the promises of God. We need to keep reminding ourselves of this gospel because we so quickly try to earn it. We so quickly try to feel a sense of security in our performance. When someone asks you, how are you going with God? And you start to think, oh, have I prayed enough? Have I read my Bible enough? You don't need to do that, friend. All right, we've seen salvation is received by faith. It's not by keeping the law. But that leaves the question, what is the law for? If the law in the Old Testament was never meant to be a way to secure God's favour, to earn God's blessing, to make ourselves right before God, what is it for? Well, that's exactly the question that Paul turns to in verse 19. And the answer he gives is that the law was given because of transgressions. Now, at one level, that means that the law was given to stop people from doing the wrong thing. If I want my kids to stop spraying the dog with the hose, I need to tell them repeatedly. At a very basic level, God tells us what is right and wrong so that we might do what is right and not do what is wrong. But it's much more than that. The law was given so that we might see just how bad our sin is. It's there to show us our transgressions. It's there to expose our lust and our greed and our pride and our jealousy. If Jesus had not said thinking hateful thoughts is the same as murder, we wouldn't ever think that we had a problem with the thoughts that are in our heads. No, no. You see, we need God's law to expose our sin, to show us our sin. It's there to show us how frequently and how easily we forget all about God and live as if he isn't there. It's there to show us our sin 
It is there to show us that we need a saviour. Friend, God gave you his law to show that you need his grace. John Stott put it like this. He said, not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need for the gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Christ to set us free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. And so, friends, do Christians need the Ten Commandments? Well, yes and no. Do you need to keep them as a basis for belonging to God? Absolutely not. In fact, we can go so far as to say that God is no more pleased with you if you keep the Ten Commandments than if you don't. Keeping them will not make him love you more. Do you know why? Because Christ kept them for you. Keeping them will not make you more accepted because you are already fully accepted in Christ. Christ has fulfilled the law for you. But do you need them still? Do you need them to show God's holy character and to expose your sin and to remind you of your need for a saviour? Yeah, you do. So don't throw out your Old Testament. We do need it. But I'm going to finish this morning where Paul does in verses 23 to 29, where he shows us how faith makes and takes away all the difference. Because essentially here, Paul argues there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are under the law and there are those who have faith. There is everyone who is trying to earn their way to God, who live their lives thinking that it is up to them to do enough to gain a life of blessing. And friends, that includes people who are trying to keep God's law, but it includes, includes everyone else who is trying to appease some other God who is, doesn't believe in a God. It includes people who are trying to earn a life for themselves. Because every world religion, every human tradition teaches that your ultimate destiny depends on you and on your doing. It teaches you to ask, have I done enough? Am I good enough? But do you see what Paul says? He says they're imprisoned. He says we were imprisoned in verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, that is faith in Jesus, we were held in custody under the law. We were held in prison. We were guilty. We were condemned. And there was no way out. And friends, most people in the world are in this category. Sadly, there are people in our churches that fit into this category, still trying to gain God's blessing through their doing. But friend, there is another kind of person. Those who have believed the promise of the gospel. Who have believed that their doing is not good enough. Who have believed that the only way they could ever get to God is if God were to come to them. And these people, friends, these people are free. These people are free from the curse. These people are free from condemnation, free from guilt, 
free to become God's children. Free to belong. And friends, do you see what this means? It means the only thing that matters is faith. You can stop worrying if you've done enough. You can stop questioning whether you're good enough. Because now there is no other human distinction that matters. That's how Paul finishes. He says that every other way that you might define someone, every other way that people have sought to elevate themselves, irrelevant now. It doesn't matter if you're educated or not. It doesn't matter if you're employed or not. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're a slave person or a free person. No human distinction matters anymore. Because the only distinction that matters is whether you will keep trying to do or whether you will trust that Jesus has done it all for you. And so, friends, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Let me pray. Now, Father, we rejoice in this gospel. We rejoice that even though there is nothing good in us that could deserve your blessing. That there is nothing that we could do to earn your blessing. That you chose to bless. That you sent your son, your innocent son, into the world to die in our place. That he went to the cross because there was no other way by which we could have a relationship with you. Father, keep us at the foot of the cross, clinging to Jesus' finished work. Keep us from ever thinking that we can do enough for you. Keep us from ever trying to earn your love. Show us that we are more loved than we could ever imagine. Lord, keep us trusting your gospel, believing your gospel, living by faith in your gospel. Because we know it is only in the gospel of the Lord Jesus that we will gain you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.